0: The strangest thing about Eli's trip into America is not that he was smuggled partway from Guatemala in a tanker truck, one of those huge trucks that usually carries fuel, sealed in with a hundred people, no windows or light, people fainting as the air got stale. And the strangest thing about Eli's trip into America was not that after they crossed the border at the Rio Grande, they were lost in the desert for 36 hours, and he had to drink his own urine to survive.
1: Yeah, you tasted a little salty, that's it. <laughs> yeah. You don't taste it. You just drink it. You just swallow it. It left a little aftertaste, but kept me alive. Now, the
0: strangest thing about Eli's trip into America is that the day he gets to Chicago, after a month on the road, nearly dying twice, 24 hours after he gets to his final destination, he goes to work washing dishes where a friend of his works, at Charlie Trotter's, one of the most expensive and exclusive restaurants in the country. We pay over 100 bucks a person, and they bring you whatever the menu happens to be that day.
1: Well, I felt like an strange, in a strange world. Totally different of uh, what I was used to. Like, let's say, this dish machine. What the hell did I know about dish machine? The kitchen well-equipped with compartments and coolers, and, and then walking into the dining room, and the table clothes quite and neat, and... That's the place where i seen the biggest wine glasses. A wine glass that would fit a bottle of wine. I remember breaking one of these big glasses. When I was told that they were over $100 each, I just went like, wow. Then there were the wines themselves. Lots of
0: people would spend $1,000 for a meal. Coming from the countryside in Guatemala, where he only needed $200 a month to maintain his home and feed his family, it's hard to comprehend.
1: It was disguised, and I, I threw away a lot of, of food. And, and you thought of how many people in my country could live with, you know, how much food was and money was wasted. It was amazing. It, it's still amazing. But I think that's just the way people live in this country. And that might be what keeps them so blind about the rest of the world. How starving is people in other parts of the planet? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they're bad, it's just the way they live here.
0: You go someplace new. You're a stranger in a strange land. You try to make sense of everything around you. And you come to conclusions that are probably different than the things that people who live there think every day. Well, today on our radio program, we have stories of people in that very situation. You're listening to This American Life from WBEZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Act one of our show today, a man tries to reinvent tourism. Yes, tourism. But he runs into a few snags once he gets to Africa. Act two... Johnny, get your mouse. You've probably um, heard about these American soldiers who are blogging from the war in Iraq. But chances are you've never actually taken the time to read uh, many of these blogs. Well, we have done that work for you and have chosen some excerpts, stories of strangers in a strange land filled with guns and landmines and IEDs, very different stories from what you get on the news. Stay with us. Equan, not just tourists, tourists who care. A guy named uh, Chris Tinov came into our studio to talk about his idea to change the face of tourism and to tell the story of his international, I don't even know the word for this, the international beta test, I guess, that he did of his idea. Before we get into any of that, you should understand a little bit about the kind of person that Chris Tinov is and the kinds of big ideas that kick around in his head.
2: I, I, I guess from time to time, I've tried to come up with... uh these sort of abstract plans on how to save the world. Um, And I've done this a few times. There was at one point I had this idea, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent. I had this idea that um, gay men in America who can't legally marry each other could go to Burma and marry women there, grant them citizenship, and through that overthrow the the Burmese government. Uh, And that's a horrible idea. I mean, for a lot of different reasons. Right. I think. Actually, I was smart enough to more or less, I've more or less kept it to myself.
0: His idea to remake international tourism is another matter. Chris came up with the idea after a dinner with some family friends who'd just gotten back from New Zealand. These are people who looked at it in a certain way could be seen as kind of obnoxious. These are the kind of people who want that authentic experience wherever they travel. In New Zealand, they went to where farmers shear sheep. When they visited Thailand. They visited hill tribe villages in Thailand. But Chris thought, you know, these people are interested in the world. And if somebody could just harness that energy, they could actually do a lot of good.
2: I I guess I, f- I really fundamentally believe that uh, that there's a lot of good-hearted people with a fair amount of disposable income who would be willing to... To really engage financially and emotionally with um communities that are impoverished and I thought you know how do you get people to engage and I thought travel um, and maybe we can get them there get them engaged and and do something useful do something philanthropic
0: so you had this idea that people could go over to other countries and and give away money is that the idea that what well, what would yeah. they do once they were there
2: well All right, let's say uh, a small group of people would go to a country like Niger and they would be taken to a village and they would spend, let's say, a week there getting to know people, seeing what life is like, sort of, and developing a kind of relationship or bond with the people there. And then when it's time to go, uh, they would leave a sizable enough amount of money to do some good there. I mean... You know, I bet like $500 would pay for building a school or it'd pay for anti-malarial medications for a year for the village. And then they'd, they'd go home and they'd have this kind of continuing bonds with the people there.
0: Now, in fact, there already exists something like this, a small movement that goes into various names, travelers' philanthropy, volunteer tourism, altruistic travel, where you go to places and maybe you don't get to know the people there quite as well as Chris envisioned. Maybe you're not in places quite so desperately off the beaten path. But you visit, you see poverty, and afterwards you donate some money. Chris didn't know about any of that, though. And he didn't know anybody had ever tried to figure out what was right or wrong about his idea. And so he started talking to experts, aid workers, about this thing that he decided to call philanthropy tourism. None of them had ever heard about the idea either. Now, Chris is a freelance reporter for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. He travels quite a bit, Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Thailand. And as fate had it, Chris actually was headed out to one of the poorest countries in the world. Sierra Leone, for his job.
2: Step one was sort of talking to a few aid workers, uh, and they generally told me it wasn't a great idea. Uh, I mean, I've been, I was told it was a sickening idea uh, by some, and uh, other people thought it was a pretty good idea. But most people had um, reservations.
0: Yeah, we, ha- we have a clip of tape that, that you made at the time. This is Anthony Lawson, a British aid worker for Action for Children in Conflict. Is that it? Yep. And um, and here's what she had to say when you ran your idea by her.
3: I think those who've done aid work for any length of time would probably be somewhat disturbed by that idea. Why? Because you'd then be turning the people who are the beneficiaries of the aid work into kind of gawping targets for tourists, yeah. which is completely unethical.
0: What, what do you think of that?
2: Um... I, hey, it's a it's a really valid criticism. I guess the issue that maybe bothered me the most was uh, this kind of image that it would be sort of wealthy wealthy North Americans coming and just sort of tossing out money like um, like breadcrumbs to pigeons or something, uh, and that you'd get these kicks out of helping them and then you'd go back to life. and um, that that image of it is, I mean, I find it repugnant.
0: But this did not deter Chris. Sure, these were valid concerns, he thought. But the impact that this could have on people's lives could be so great, he hoped there just could be some way to do it reasonably, without the gawking, without the exploitation. And so, like a doctor in a science fiction movie who develops an experimental serum and worried that it is too dangerous to try out the serum on anybody else, he injects it into his own veins first, Chris decided to try out philanthropy tourism himself. He would throw himself into the crucible. Like I said, he was in Sierra Leone anyway. He'd go to a poor village himself, meet the people, and donate some money to see if it could possibly be done without all the pitfalls and problems. It was kind of, it was kind of ad hoc. Planning? You know, I
2: didn't, I didn't do much planning. I'd planned to plan at some point, but then I found myself in a car going to this um, sort of isolated village called Tombodoo, and we were about to get there, and I just thought, well, let's
0: let's give it a shot. You mean you were going to the village to do uh, interviewing for your reporting?
2: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we were literally like a few hundred meters out of this village. And I was traveling with the chief's nephew. And I said, um, when we get to the village, I'd like to uh, talk to the elders because um, I'd like to pay for someone in the village who needs a, a medical operation. And uh, he said, what, are you sure? And I said, Yeah. And he said, okay, well, we'll talk to the
0: elders. Okay, so you go there, and like, what's, what happens when you're brought before the elders of a small village?
2: It, it wasn't very formal. Uh, the chief's nephew knew who to look for, and we stopped by a couple houses and just actually just picked the guys up. And we sort of had this little conference in the back of the car, and they said, well, we know the guy. Uh, we know the guy. We'll get him for you
0: and what was his um, what was his medical ailment that he needed uh, an operation on
2: well um it had something to do with a infected and torn scrotum that had been bothering him for a long time for years and um when i later met him i could see he was having you know great difficulty walking and so i just sort of said well they they know who needs the operation so this is it
0: um did you have any sense of if he was trying to get the money together for an operation
2: yeah, well, he told me that that morning he'd gone uh, with his younger brother on the, the the trip into a near town, nearby town, um, and he'd gone to the to the doctors, and they'd said this is what it is, and they wrote out how much it would cost to pay for an operation, which was the the uh, the whopping sum of one hundred and fifty dollars, and this was going to take he he figured uh, about a year long fundraising to get that kind of money together. And so I came like literally an hour after he returned to the village. And so he told me later, he said, uh, you know, heaven sent you to me. I know you're an angel. $150, it
0: just seems like so little.
2: Yeah, it's a poor country. I mean, and Tombaudeau
0: is a poor village in in Sierra Leone. Now, I understand um, you then made a speech to the village. And we have a recording of that that you made. And can you just tell me, like, what is the setting? Like, who is there? Where are you? Are you just standing out in the open? As I'd been walking around the village, there'd been more and more
2: people gathering around. So there was 10 and then 20. And then I think there was about 50 people by then. And we were going to be driving out of town with this fellow. And and in fact, the chief's nephew had said, you know, we can't just toss him in the car and drive off. You've got to, you've got to say something to explain it.
0: Okay. Here's a recording of it hello
4: everyone Hello. my name is chris i'm from canada before i left canada i talked to some of my relatives and i told them i was coming to sierra leone and i asked them if they could give me a little
2: bit of money to help someone
0: now i'm just going to stop the tape right there before we go further is that True,
2: you mean that I'd ask um, relatives to pitch in?
0: Yes. Yeah. Really? Strictly speaking, true. Uh,
2: it was probably what I was spending was I don't know half mine and half family members. But you know what? I was really I was really glad to be able to say that. I mean, it feels weird to you know to say, "Hey, look, I'm giving this money for these people." So it felt yeah I like to be able to say this isn't this isn't me doing something. It's family members. I'm just sort of an instrument.
0: Let me play that on my tape.
4: So this is why I'm taking this man from your village to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And so so
2: then
0: they break into a pause, and you feel.
2: Yeah, that that was my Angelina Jolie moment. On the one hand, it was a little bit giddy. It's nice. It's nice to have all these people cheering for something you've decided to do. But on the other hand, I I really did feel like a big fraud. I mean, the fifty people like literally started cheering, and I thought, "This is one hundred and fifty dollars that I'm spending." But it seems it seems like there's way too much veneration, way too much excitement. I mean,
0: w- was there a part of you which which you wanted to say, "No, no, no, you don't understand. Like this, this really isn't very much for me." Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Like, don't get so excited. Yeah, that would that would have been a weird thing to say. Yeah. But also, I was told, another thing that, that aid workers and also the chief's nephew brought up is that there's a real problem that people come to expect every foreigner is going to give a lot of money. Um, the aid workers at me: don't encourage this culture of dependency. Make sure to say that not every foreigner is going to come along with money and do something like this. But
4: I just want to, I want to say something very clear. <laughs> Please don't expect every white person who comes... To do this. And there are a lot of NGOs now and organizations in Sierra Leone. And one day, most of them, they're going to slowly leave.
2: Yeah, what the hell am I talking about there? I mean, it's true. The UN is, is hugely invested in Sierra Leone right now after the, the end of the civil war, and they are going to start pulling out. But I don't know. It just seems sort of... Uh, Sort of arrogant to to say to be kind of wagging my finger and saying you guys have got to put uh, establish your own healthcare system. You know you can't expect foreigners to do it. Yeah. After that speech and when we got into the car and started bouncing our way back to the, the nearby town, um, I finally got the chance to start talking to this man, and and that was when things really started to feel right. And actually, we ended up sitting together for a couple hours and just chatting. And he told me about about his life, really, and about his grandchildren and about the, the day he found a diamond um, in the pits nearby and was able to build this nice house that later got burnt down by the rebels. You know, talking about his grandchildren and how he wasn't going to be a, a boring old man anymore. He said once he had this operation, he'd be able to garden again and walk around. And so it was really it was quite touching. It was nice to have got to know him over, over that afternoon and early evening.
0: first field test turned out exactly how Chris had hoped it would. And as he traveled, he even met some people in Sierra Leone who saw his vision, who got really excited about the idea of philanthropy tourism. And uh, there's one woman who already was trying to think of
2: how to get people to visit this little hippo preserve, this baby, and what was it, miniature hippo preserve in Sierra Leone. And um, yeah, she was working out how much it would cost. What are you talking about? I
0: feel like she's sitting on gold. She has miniature baby hippos. Yeah and she can't get westerners to come and give money like that, that's that that's the easiest sell i've ever heard she basically is sitting on like wild african baby miniature baby african hippo puppies right like that's what we're talking about here
2: yeah well the problem is it's in sierra leone the land of the child soldiers and amputation squads so it's not sierra leone is not an easy tourism cell.
0: It's actually such a tough tourism cell, Chris thought, that it would be prudent to do a second trial of his experiment. After all, it's not really science if you can't replicate your results. He heard about a non-profit organization called Gracelands that had a good reputation for helping people. He thought maybe he'd try there. It's an
2: organization for traumatized young women. Most of them were uh, bush brides, which meant during the Civil War, uh, rebel groups would have you know captured them in their village and taken them off and a lot of them would have been gang raped and um you know forced to to serve the this this rebel group and uh in into these sort of marriages um i I'd, I'd also found out that um there was a young woman there who needed an operation and so i was going to give them money for this operation to the organization but i thought you know i'd spend an afternoon there you just
0: wanted to get to know them a little bit
2: yeah and I didn't even plan on getting to know this one woman whose operation I was paying for in particular, I thought. We'll just hang out and we'll have this sort of it's the same sort of thing that I had with um the the gentleman in the um in the other village. But it didn't quite happen that way. When I got there, you know, we started talking and then the the young women there would start to tell me, you know, exactly what had happened to them.
0: You mean because you asked, or just because you were this foreigner who was in there, and it seemed like the thing to do
2: well, I mean, I would ask a question like you know tell tell me about you know where where are you from, you know or something like that and and they would s- describe being captured by the rebels, and they'd talk about the difficult straits they're in now, and I just I kind of got the feeling that these young women thought here's someone who can provide help, and so we've got to show to him like what we really need it, and so even though it was sort of um uncomfortable, they would start to describe these painful incidents. and in fact, like I don't even really know how how this happened, but i I mean, why the conversations took that turn, but it happened again and again and and uh I just felt horrible.
0: Now now we have a recording of of you with some of these women, and I have to say it just it, it seems so painful. Like I, I'm not sure I even want to play it on the radio, just because it feels like your heart goes out to these women who just start crying when, when when they start talking to you about this. And 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 I and I wonder, um, at the end of that experience, did you feel like, okay, well, that's it. I guess this isn't such a great idea. Like, how did you feel at the end of that? Um, yeah, I felt like I, f- I felt sort
2: of exploitative. You know that um, I was coming there to. Okay, I was going to give some money, but I was also going to. F- enjoy their company and maybe even sort of feel good about what I was doing. And that instead of it being pleasurable for everyone, it turned into what was really this heart-ringing catalyst for grief while I was there. And so I kind of think that that one was a mistake. But ultimately, even though the second time didn't work out that well, I still think it was a good idea for me because it just really convinced me... um, that you can engage in with these like small amounts of money, you can
0: really do something useful.
2: It's I think it's kind of absurd how easy it is, and and that it's not being
0: done. But 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 you say it's so easy. But when you talk to that that woman, it, it seemed like it was incredibly um uh d- you know painful for her.
2: Yeah, I guess what I think was the easy part in that situation. It was very easy to give. It was like hundred and twenty dollars for this operation, which is. You know, not that much money, and you can change someone's life. That's the easy part. The the really difficult part is these relationships.
0: I wonder if the thing that, that 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 makes it um such such so tough is the fact that you're trying to get something back from it. Do you know what I mean? Like when you talk about it, you say you you thought you'd enjoy their company, you thought that you'd have an experience that would make you feel good about what you were doing, and I, and I wonder if if the nature of this kind of act is that. You have to do it, not expecting anything back,
2: yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, and why do you have to have a good time when doing this? Um, I just think it's uh, it's because people need an inducement in order to do the right thing sometimes.
0: I know but but it's almost like you're trying to take people who who, who don't want to be generous and say, "Well, there's something in it for you, and I feel like in the end. Maybe charity is really just going to be for the generous.
2: I think people will be more generous once once they go and meet people and see what the situation is like, and so um, so it's setting up that engagement. Um, and this idea of philanthropy tourism, it's not for people who are already giving a lot of money to organizations. Right. And I really believe that once people have actually seen what it's like, they will be generous.
0: Chris Tineau, he still believes that somebody could get philanthropy tourism to work, somebody with organizational skills. He says that he'll still give to charity, but never again one-on-one in a village. Coming up, some of the unpleasant dangers of being an American serviceman in Iraq, IEDs, ambushes, subscriptions to Details Magazine. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. <laughs> This is American Life Myra Glass. If you're going to program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Strangers in a Strange Land. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show. Act 2, Johnny, get your mouse. Soldiers in Iraq are writing open diaries about their experience in that strange place on daily blogs that anybody can read on the Internet. We now have excerpts of three of them. Many uh, of the blogs that are out there very consciously try to counteract what soldiers consider the bias of the mainstream media. These blogs tell stories of successes, schools built, kids who get health care. All of that is very common. But the blogs are much more than that. One of our producers, Amy O'Leary, has been uh, reading dozens and dozens of the blogs, trying to get a sense of what they're about and get an overview. Amy?
3: Well, I would say about 20% of them are writing with, with uh, you know, a, an emphatic sort of political sensibility, you know, and... By and large, almost all of those are, are patriotic and conservative, and they are talking about the war and talking about their support for it. Um, there's a, another 20% that are, are not really writing for anyone except friends or family. It's much more private. So
0: this is like in lieu of emailing like a whole bunch of people. They just put it up there, and the people who know them just look.
3: Right. And then the last group is is the majority, and those blogs are really people who who are trying to write about the war to explain it. To people back in the states,
0: what are they writing about?
3: Um, how they pass the time, how they're doing. Um, you know, a lot of it's counting down the days to come home. How the food is. You know, practical jokes they played on on the guys they're with. Pretty basic stuff. So you know, if they go on missions, they talk about that. A lot about Iraqi kids. Almost everybody talks about the kids they've seen in the street. There's so many pictures of soldiers helping kids. Uh, Soldiers handing out candy and pens and pencils, they all seem to have a really sort of strong affection and fondness for the the kids in Iraq. Hmm.
0: And so what's the picture that you get of the war after you read a lot of these that you might not have otherwise?
3: There are so many people writing. There are so many blogs. There are so many people's lives who are encompassed by this war. And... And, you know, you might hear about an IED explosion, you might hear about, you know, a truck bomb or something. But then when you read about it over and over again, and you read, like, almost anybody who's left the base has been hit by an IED. This is is not, you know, a couple of isolated incidents. This is a fact of life for the people who are over there.
0: Okay, so now we're going to hear uh, excerpts from a handful of different bloggers. And this first one is Captain Chuck Ziegenfoss. I should say that um, we have links to all of the URLs uh, at our website, thisamericanlife.org. The URL for his blog is tcoverride.blogspot.com, and um, he on his blog describes himself as an unashamedly patriotic American, 15 years in the Army, the commander of Charlie Company 234 Armour in Iraq and at Fort Riley, Kansas. He had about 65 to 70 guys under him and 14 tanks. Here he is.
5: I had an interesting day. I went on another patrol, but this one got pretty interesting right off the bat. We were walking through a palm grove, just looking around, and I looked about three feet to my right and saw a landmine. I immediately looked at my feet, not making the connection that if I had already stepped on a mine, I'd not have any feet. Well, we cordoned off the area and swept for more mines as some of the boys prepped it for demolition. About thirty minutes later, I was fifty yards away talking to one of my platoon sergeants, and I find another mine. This one is about fifteen feet away, under a piece of cinder block. Again, I look at my feet before saying, Hey, isn't that a mine? We blew them both up and went about our business. The weird thing about all this was how normal it all seemed. I didn't get excited, just went about doing my job. I guess it'll all end up as part of my PTSD later. I was talking to one of the villagers today as I was watched by her seven kids. As I looked at the youngest of them, a little girl about my daughter's age, I saw a dirty face and a big toothy grin. She hid by Grandma abaya and just kept staring and smiling. She was wearing sandals and a t-shirt and a 7th generation hand-me-down pair of pants. Here I was, standing around wearing my desert uniform, wool socks, coat, body armor, and all my gear, and I was a little chilly. But these kids are dressed like we dress in the summer. It's not a matter of acclimation, they simply have no other choice. I just wanted to give that little girl a pair of shoes and a warm smile and tell her that people in America that have never met her, care about her. I came over here thinking we should just bomb this place into a parking lot. I now think that as alien as this culture is, it may actually be worth saving. I figure that if I'm going to have to find mines, get shot at and get blown up by IEDs, I might try to do some good here too. God knows I'm way low on karma points. An hour later, a little kid throws a rock at my truck. It bounces off the gunner's turret, hits him in his sunglasses, shatters the lens, and gives the gunner one hell of a shiner. So much for the shoes. I showed him something else, love, parental American style. I chased him on foot through the town, pulled his pants down in front of all of his little buddies, and spanked his bare ass right there on the street. If it's good enough for my kids, it's good enough for him. Pretty dull day today. I had a meeting with the sheikhs council in my Nahia, which is like a county, with a local mayor and about 20 sheikhs, and maybe three of them I trust. The head sheikh, Sheikh Adnan, looks like a very tan Lee Marvin. There's another one, Sheikh Amr, who looks like Father Guido Sarducci from old SNL reruns. The Iraqi army major I work with, Major Kareem, looks, I swear, just like Eugene Levy from SCTV. The sheikhs all bitch about the same things. They want public works projects in their towns, and we want them to guarantee security and turn over terrorists to us. They balk and say that they can control their people, but people come from other areas to plant IEDs and attack Americans. We say bullshit and tell them that we can't pay for the public works until the area is secure. Lather, rinse, and repeat. Third verse, same as the first. I imagine this will go on for a year or so. Sheikh Adnan is pretty likeable, and seems to be a pretty honest broker. He told me yesterday that sometimes he will have to say things to me in front of the other sheikhs that he does not necessarily back. I understand that he has to do it to save face. I also told him in no uncertain terms that I didn't really care what he said to me in front of the other sheikhs, as long as we remain respectful to each other. I told him that if he disrespects me, I will drag him through the streets in cuffs and put him in a very dark place. It seemed weird to say that to a 50 year old man but he smiled and told me that he was glad to see that I had backbone and that there are very few people who would ever say that to his face and he respects me for it. He asked me if I was a prince or a sheikh in America because I had so many tanks and soldiers. I didn't want to tell him the truth because it would actually hurt my position with him. So I told him that America does not have princes or sheikhs. But I was personally commissioned by the President of the United States and placed in command of the company under his authority. This, of course, is true, but not exactly forthcoming. He was very impressed by that.
6: Did you know that in America they have machines that make clouds come? I didn't either until we found out from an Iraqi man at the gas station. And thank God our body armor has those internal cooling units. If I didn't have that micro air conditioner inside, then I'd just be walking around with a 30-pound vest in 110-degree heat. Oh, and I don't know where I'd be without my sunglasses. Unfortunately, many Iraqis have figured out that they allow me to see weapons through people's clothing. I don't know where they get this stuff from, but if myths about American technology make someone think twice about attacking us, then I guess I can't
0: complain. This is Truman Muir Irwin, who blogs at LiveJournal.com under the name Rebel Coyote. He's originally from Chicago. He joined the Army National Guard, served as a private first class in Alpha Company, 3rd Battalion, 124th Infantry. We had
6: just finished the DVD of Friends Season 3, and me, Micah, and Jared had all sat down to watch Season 4. We were all having a good time. Ross and Rachel were getting back together after a weekend retreat to the beach. Phoebe discovered who her real mother was. Joey dug a hole. Chandler made snide remarks. And in Baghdad, a suicide bomber drove a vehicle packed with explosives up to the Turkish embassy and detonated it, killing himself and injuring at least two embassy workers. The blast, no more than a mile away from our compound, shook the walls. The doors rattled, the windows of our supply room cracked. The explosion was louder than the RPG that struck our compound two months earlier. It still doesn't seem real. None of this. Even the biggest explosion seemed like special effects in a long, drawn-out training exercise. It was still hard to believe that this is real, that people are dying, and that the events that make CNN headlines, the kind of stuff that's passed through my peripheral awareness my entire life, is happening
0: a mile away from where I sleep. After this entry on Truman's blog, there are a couple more entries, and then on November 9th, 2003, the entries stop. Five days later, this message appears on the blog from his friend Emily. Hi all, this is Emmy, updating on behalf of Rebel Coyote. To start with, Truman is going to be okay. However, he won't be updating for a while. She goes on to say that Truman's been injured. He's in hospital in Germany. He'll write again when he can. Then, just over a week later, at midnight, November 17th, Truman comes back to tell what happened. We were on our
6: way to pick up a few things from our compound. If we were going to spend the rest of the week at 1st AD Brigade Headquarters, we were sure as hell going to have all our stuff. We were just going to make a quick stop at the barracks, then head over to Gunner, Main. As we were coming up towards River Road, I stared out at the street, pulling security from behind the fifty cal. Then all of a sudden, something hit me. It felt like we'd driven under a low bridge, or maybe someone had hit me with a brick. It took almost a full second to realize what had happened. The smoke and the dust were all around us. There was no sound but the dull ringing in my head, and all I could smell was blood. I began to feel frantically around my throat for wounds as the voice of platoon medic Matt Moss pierced the silence. Get away from the vehicle, he screamed. He was right. The gas tanks could go, or someone could be waiting with an RPG for the dust to clear. While I lowered myself to the ground, I looked through the missing windshield and saw Wise, still motionless in the passenger seat. His head was tilted back, and his face was covered in blood. Help me move him, Matt shouted. I can't, I yelled. I think my foot's broken. As I hopped off to the side of the road and sat down, I realized that my foot was not only broken, but pouring a steady stream of blood from the left side. Through gritted teeth and intense pain, I unlaced my boot and pulled it off. The left side of my sock was entirely soaked and dripping with blood, but the right side was a large, charred patch of indistinguishable skin, sock, and shrapnel. I'm going to lose my foot, I thought. Then Matt's voice broke through my self-absorbed agony. Come on, Wise, breathe, he shouted. God damn it, breathe. You're not going to die here. I shouldn't be worried about my foot while one of my best friends is dying ten feet away. But it hurts so bad. Wise and I were loaded onto a Black Hawk and evac to the hospital at the palace. They'd gotten him breathing again. They said he'd be Okay. At the hospital, they gave me morphine. It didn't do much for the pain, but Wise was going to be okay, and once the doctor pulled the shrapnel out, he said I wasn't going to lose my foot. All in all, I was in a good mood. Maybe it was just the drugs, but I knew everything was going to be fine. The doctors put me under for surgery. They cleaned out my wound and cut away the dead, burned tissue. When I woke up, I didn't feel any pain. I still had my foot. I was going to be back in the States in a week and I found out that Wise, the guy I would spent the last nine months getting to know better than anyone else, died of massive head trauma while I was in surgery. He'll be buried at Arlington National Cemetery next week. This is all a dream. Any second now, Softy's gonna wake me up for a guard shift. Any second now, I'm going to climb grudgingly out of my bed and look across through the dim light and see Wise. He'll be making that face again, the one that's questioning how many people he'd have to kill to go back to sleep. We'll get dressed, drag our feet up to the roof, and spend a miserable three hours in the freezing wind staring down at the road. Maybe he'll tell me about his job at Grey Bar, or an anecdote from his days as J-Rotzy Corps Commander. I might tell him about Chicago and why things didn't work out with my last girlfriend. We'll nod and pretend we haven't heard the stories before. We'll bitch about our leaders and talk about our plans when we get home. Maybe Wise will even pull out a 3 by 5 card and draw up the floor plan for his house again. Any second I'll wake up and Wise won't be dead. Because he can't be dead. People only die in the newspapers. But the seconds pass and I don't wake up to anything but sterile sheets and pain. I never thought I'd join the army. I'd had a fairly liberal pacifist upbringing and couldn't imagine myself as a soldier. I feel funny admitting it now, but ultimately it was the college money that got me. It seemed like a good deal. I knew that even if I got sent overseas, the worst case scenario was a rotation in Bosnia. I wouldn't be gone more than six months. I hated the way this war started. It took me a long time to come to terms with my role as a soldier in Iraq. Eventually I came to realize that although the method was flawed, the result was freedom for the people for the first time in thirty years. People don't hear the good things from the news, and I'll admit that even I have trouble taking the things that come from the White House press room seriously. But no one hears about the people who bring us food on the streets and take their children out to shake our hands. We established the first garbage collection system in Baghdad's history. We've arrested dozens of corrupt gas station managers to keep gas prices stable. And I can't think of the last time I heard someone mention the sanctions which killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, and are now over. We have no choice but to finish the job we started. Anything less would be disastrous for the Iraqi people. Anything less would mean that every person who's died here did it for nothing. And wives didn't die for nothing. I'm back in the U.S. now. I have a long and difficult road ahead of me. Even once my foot is healed, it'll take months of physical therapy before I can walk again. But the important thing is that I will walk again. I get asked about my foot a lot. People ask me what happened or how I hurt it, in elevators, in the airport. Asking about an apparently simple injury, like a foot in a thick ace bandage wrap, seems to be acceptable small talk. Like, nice weather today, huh? It's not that I mind, it's just that it's awkward because when I tell them what happened, they never know what to say. It sounds so weird. It was a roadside bomb in Baghdad. Sometimes I say it and it doesn't even sound true. I feel like I'm making it up. Then there's the people who ask things like, how'd you break it, or did you fall down the stairs? Or the lady who said, oh, I had arch problems once. (laughs) Not like this lady, I guarantee you. When I tell people what happened, some people are really nice. They shake my hand and thank me. Others just say things like, Wow, that sucks, or, Oh, I'm sorry, and look slightly embarrassed. I feel weird saying it. They feel weird hearing it. I've honestly considered telling people I sprained my ankle. I think it may only be a matter of time before I do.
0: A third blogger is Colby Bazell, who had a really popular blog, thousands of readers, called My War, Killing Time in Iraq. Since he got back to the States, he's taken lots of these entries, added some new stuff, and published it as a book under the same name. He was a machine gunner in the 3rd Arrowhead Brigade, 2nd Infantry Division out of Fort Lewis, serving in Mosul.
7: 20 October 03. Another brief at Carey Theater. The second half was about rules of engagement. A female captain came out and asked us a hypothetical what if question. If your convoy was going under an overpass, and there was women and children on the overpass throwing rocks down at us, what should you do? Do you shoot or not shoot? The first answer that came to my head was no. You don't engage, you don't fire unless you see a weapon, so no, I would not fire. I wonder why she said women and children, like why not say people instead, or was women and children for effect? One soldier in the auditorium instantly yelled out, light em up, which was followed by some laughter. But there was also people in the auditorium that disagreed with the light-em-up answer. As soldiers were debating with each other on what should be done in a situation like that, the battalion commander stepped up, and I could tell that he wasn't really digging on what this captain was trying to do here. And he asked us all a non-hypothetical question. How many of you have been in combat? Several people raised their hands. The captain, I noticed, did not. How many of you have been shot at? Almost all the raised hands stayed raised. Then you understand that it doesn't matter if it's a woman or a child. If they have a weapon, they have a weapon. And If you feel threatened, you feel threatened. He then told us all not to worry about doing the right thing, that if we wanted to do the right thing, to go out and run a Spike Lee movie. He then stressed to us that if we felt threatened, pull the trigger. It's better to be safe than sorry. It's better him dead than you. We were engaged in a huge firefight at the Shayfatik police station at the mosque next door to it. It took hours. Then at the end, the ING, Iraqi National Guard, showed up. Our platoon leader chose a couple soldiers from our platoon to talk to the media, who wanted to find out what went down today in Missoula. A high-ranking Army public affairs officer, a lieutenant colonel, briefed them on what they could and could not say. All three told me that he stressed to them to tell the media that the insurgents fired first, and we were there just to return fire, which is true. But he also told them, do not say that tow missiles were used in the attack, but to instead say internal weapon systems were used. Whatever, that's no big deal. That's like saying instead of telling the media that you turned fire with your M4, tell them that you returned fire with your self-defense mechanism. But then he told them a flat-out lie when he said, do not mention the fact that the Iraqi police fled from the mosque and the police station, how they didn't even put up a fight, but instead tell the media that they fought well and did an excellent job. To make sure I never run out of reading material, I subscribed to as many magazines as possible before I left the States. I went to the mag rack at the PX and grabbed as many of those annoying subscription slips as I could. I find that infantrymen are into macho testosterone literature when it comes to monthly periodicals. Mags like 4x4 monthly, guns and ammo... Outdoor World, Soldier of Fortune, which I subscribed to just for the articles, and of course the softcore bubblegum skin mags like Maxim, FHM, and Stuff. Pornography and magazines like Playboy and Penthouse are of course not allowed in Iraq for reasons to have to do with not offending anyone and being sensitive to the Islamic culture or some sh** like that. So I subscribed to magazines that I liked but knew not a lot of other soldiers read, like Thrasher, MAD, National Geographic, Time and details. To this day, I seriously have no idea why the f I I subscribed to details, which I caught a lot of hell for and brought up a bunch of questions about my sexuality among fellow squad members. At every mail call, I would dread whenever the new issue would arrive, because my squad leader would read off the name of whoever the letter or package was addressed to, and he'd flip it over and show the rest of the squad the cover, which would always be some sexy cover shot of like Vin Diesel or Justin Timberlake. Then he'd throw the mag at me and say something like, Don't ask, don't tell. Of course, everyone in my squad would get a laugh out of this and say things like, Dude, you're a homo. And I, of course, would feel the need to explain myself. Look, dude, Details is not a mag for gay people. Check it out. There's tons of hot chicks in here. And I would open it up and flip through the pages and try to prove to the guys in my squad that Details was a totally hetero mag. Which kind of backfired on me because when I did this, every single page that I opened to was a full-page photo of some girly man doing his best Zoolander. Thursday, August 4th, 2004. Men in Black. I was in my room reading a book, Thin Red Line, when the mortar started coming down. Usually when we get mortared, it's usually one or maybe two mortars. But this mortar attack went on for like 20 minutes. Sergeant Horrocks ripped open the door and yelled, Grab your guys and go down the motor pool. The whole battalion is rolling out. Holy s***, sh- the whole battalion? This must be big. One by one, the strikers were rolling out of the motor pool, ready to hunt down whoever was f***ing with us. Soldiers in the hatches of the vehicles were hooting and hollering, doing the Indian yell thing as they drove off and locked and loaded their weapons. As I turned on all our computers and radios inside our vehicle to get ready to roll out, I heard on our radio that the was hitting the fan all over Mosul. Large amounts of AIF anti-Iraqi forces were attacking us with small arms, IEDs and RPG fire. And there was a bunch of people wearing all black armed with AK-47s all over Mosul. I was sticking out of my hatch behind the 50 cal. I glanced over to the left side of the vehicle at which time I observed the man dressed in all black with a terrorist beard jump out all of a sudden from the side of a building. He pointed his AK barrel right at my pupils. I saw the fire from his muzzle flash leaving the end of his AK as he was shooting directly at me. I heard and felt the bullets was literally inches from my head, hitting all around my hatch and fifty cal mount making a ping 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 sound. We were driving down route Tampa. All hell suddenly came down around us, out of nowhere all these guys wearing all black couple dozen on each side of the street, on rooftops, alleys, edge of buildings, out of windows, everywhere. Just came out out of nowhere and started unloading on us. IEDs were being ignited on both sides of the street. I freaked the f*** out and ducked down in the hatch and I yelled over the radio, Holy s***, we got f hajis all over the place. They're all over, goddammit. Bullets were pinging all over our armor and you could hear multiple RPGs being fired, soaring through the air in every which way and impacting all around us. All sorts of crazy, insane Hollywood explosions were going off. I was like, this is it, I'm gonna die. I cannot put in words how scared I was. The vehicle in front of us, Bravo Victor 2-1, was getting hit by multiple RPGs. I kinda lost it and was yelling and screaming all sorts of things, mostly cuss words. With RPGs still flying, our driver floored it, pedaled to the metal and redlined the vehicle right through the ambush as fast as he could. Finally, we fired our way out of the kill zone and made our way over to Bridge 5. We parked the vehicle and dismounted. I lit up a smoke and started to scan my sector. The Pepsi bottling plant across the street was all up in flames. Then after a couple minutes, we were told to load back up and go back to where we got ambushed. I'm not going to lie. I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to get killed. I was scared to death. But we had to go back. And we did. We rolled back to the area where we just dodged death and we were taking fire from all over. I fired and fired and fired and fired at everything. We were running low on 50 cal ammunition at this point, and my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Horner, told me to reload. He told me that the ammo was strapped down on the outside of the vehicle over on the right side. Why the fuck would the ammo for the 50 cal be on the outside of the vehicle? With my hands I did the sign cross my chest said a prayer please god i don't want to f-ing die and as my platoon sergeant laid down some suppressive fire with his m4 i got up out of the hatch got my whole body completely out of the vehicle and walked on the top of our vehicle to find a box of 50 cal ammunition i was shaking and scared out of my f-ing mind as i did this and thinking to myself that having ammo located on the outside of a vehicle has got to be the dumbest f-ing idea in the world and whoever thought of that idea should be f-ing shot saw a crowd of people suspiciously peeking around a corner at us. I pointed this out to Sergeant Horner and asked him what I should do. As he was shooting non-stop from his hatch in the heat of the moment he told me to just shoot him and he explained to me that these people have no business out on the street whatsoever right now. So I pointed the crosshairs at him but then I moved it right above their heads and fired a burst which got them to disperse in a hurry. I could tell that they were just spectators. Suddenly about 300 meters away from us over by the traffic circle, I saw two guys with those red and white jihad towels wrapped around their heads, creeping around a corner. They were hunched down, hiding behind a stack of tires. I could tell by their body language something was up. I placed the crosshairs on them, and it was about to waste them, but for some reason I pulled the trigger. These guys were not dressed in black like the guys earlier, and from what I could see, they didn't have any weapons on them. Something told me that I should just wait one, maybe two more seconds. Then I saw another guy creeping around that corner with an RPG in his hand. As soon as I saw that, I yelled RPG as loud as I could into the CVC. My crosshairs were bouncing all over, so I gathered my composure as fast as I could, put the crosshairs on them, and engaged them with a good 10-round burst of some 50 cal, right at them. Nobody moved from behind those tires after that. This gunfight has been going on for four and a half hours when the INGs, Iraqi National Guard, finally showed up to the party, about f***ing time, in their ING pickup trucks, all jam-packed with ING soldiers in uniform armed with AK-47s. We had to return to Fob Merez, as we were running extremely low on fuel, ammo, and water. So we all mounted up and drove back to the Fob. I was smoking like a chimney, one right after another. My nerves were completely shot and I was emotionally drained That I noticed that my hands were still kind of shaking. I was thinking how lucky I was to be alive. I've never experienced anything like the fear I felt today. A couple times today I thought about that guy who jumped out from the corner of that building with that angry look on his face when he pointed the AK at my head and pulled the trigger. The attacks on my platoon up to this point had been just chicken sh** hit-and-run bullsh**. Every time we'd get hit, they'd be nowhere in sight. These guys today were on the offensive. They held their ground and showed no fear in us whatsoever. Before that ambush, I received a lot of emails from people, and I'd just scan over them briefly. But then when I posted the Men in Black entry, my blog blew up like an IED on Route Tampa. I was getting emails from people all over the United States, Europe, Canada, South America, as well as soldiers in Kuwait, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Soldiers didn't even know what Fab Morez were emailing me. Even the helicopter pilots that flew above us on missions were emailing me. That's when I knew my blog was huge, once I started getting emails from the helicopter pilots. Every now and then I get an email that said things like, Thank you for serving. I enjoyed your articles until you took off with the bad words. I, for one, am sorry that I won't be able to read about your experiences anymore. I always ignored and deleted those kinds of emails. F- them. If they don't like the swear words, they can go read somebody else's f- blog. About a week or so before this, in the back of the striker during a mountain patrol, Specialist Cummings asked me if I knew anything about a soldier in Missoula who did a blog. Habe and I just kind of looked at each other, and I asked Cummings why. He told me that his parents emailed him, asking him if he knew anything about it. Habe and I just laughed, so I told Cummings all about it, and he told me all about how his father saves all the entries that I write on a separate file and goes through it all and deletes all the cuss words and swear words out of it, so that way his mom could be able to read it. Sergeant Horrocks' sister also read the blog, and she emailed Horrocks to have him tell me to save the profanities for the movie. Honestly, I didn't even realize that I was swearing as much as I was. Sometimes I got an email that hit close to home and put everything into perspective. Like the email I received from the mother who lost a son here in Missoula several days before he was supposed to return home on R&R. She thanked me for writing about what was going on. She said, I read many entries and felt blessed, comforted in a way, as you have given me a peek into what my son had experienced in Missoula. You have thoughts like he would have had, I think. I just want to thank you for sharing in this way. God works through people by stirring their hearts, and sometimes people never know how they are helping others. I thank you, pray for your safety, and your safe return home. I read her email, and I sat there at the computer monitor for a moment, and I didn't know what to say. What do you say to someone who's lost a son here? I don't know if I did the right thing. Probably not. But I never wrote her back. I didn't know what to write. Kobe
0: Bazell. His book, based on writing from his blog, is called My War, Killing Time in Iraq. We also heard from Truman Moore-Irwin, who recently was tattooed with his friend Weiss's name. His foot is healed now. And Chuck Ziegenfuss. He's at Walter Reed Medical Hospital for surgeries, trying to recover feeling in his left hand after being injured by an IED. Web addresses at our website, ThisAmericanLife.org. Truth
1: of the matter is, nobody really knows what's gonna happen to him, when it's gonna happen to him, or where it's gonna happen to him. Just so let the cars fall as they may. I'm halfway home, but it's still a long road to be traveled, and I know at any given moment things could go sour.
0: Our program was produced today by Amy O'Leary and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Jane to Sarah Koenig, and Lisa Pollock. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Sam Hallgren and Chris Ladd. Special thanks to John Hockenberry, who wrote about military bloggers in Wired Magazine. To Matt at Blackfive.net, 5net Tom Wright, a dayinIraq.com, Julie Wedding. And you can read more about Eli, the guy from Guatemala at the top of our show, and Jeff Libman's book, An Immigrant Class, Oral Histories from Chicago's Newest Immigrants. Our website, where you can listen to our shows for absolutely free or do your Christmas shopping. Buy programs on CD, Best of Collections, our comic book, and especially the DVD of the story I did with cartoonist Chris Ware. That's at www.thisamericanlife.org. You know, you can download today's program at our archives at audible.com slash This American Life. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is made possible by TiVo, automatically recording just the shows worth watching and ignoring the rest. TiVo, TV your way. Learn more at TIVO.com. And by Volkswagen of America and the new Beetle, perhaps the only automobile out on America's roadways that is trying to make people smile for no reason at all. The new Beetle. Learn more at forceofgood.com. WBEC management oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia who came by our office this morning with donuts yes donuts and a warning please
4: don't expect every white person who comes to do this
0: I'm Ira Glass back next week with more stories of this American life
3: is that that show by those hipster know-it-alls that talk about how fascinating ordinary people are
1: <laughs> god it's only a matter of time for they get me Though so far they miss me next time they shoot in my direction one hits me. yet yeah, the odds is against me. Love's been with me so far. I know death's right a corner, but I don't know how far. And I ain't trying to hear my number. P.R.I. Public Radio International.